Well, turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Continue our way in the final chapter of this midsection. We'll look today at Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 24. Romans chapter 11, and beginning at verse 13. And brothers, sisters, let us hear God's word. I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we just thank you for the mercies of God in Christ, the assembly of your people, the holy scriptures, and ask for you to speak this morning. We come hungry to hear your word. We want to learn. We want to increase in our knowledge of God, of what Romans teaches, of how the whole Bible holds together, and we have a hunger to obey and then to go out living as your people. If we don't have that hunger, Lord, give us that hunger. Your word creates the very thing it calls for. And be pleased to work graciously among your people this morning. Forgive us again of sin. We don't deserve these things, but you are merciful and you are loved. So we pray that we would know that love and that you would glorify yourself by working graciously among your people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel contains an inherent contradiction. There's tension in the very gospel of God. You see, on the one hand, the gospel removes any grounds for us to boast. To be a boastful people before God, the gospel pulls that rug out from under our feet. 1 Corinthians 1 reads, God chose the lowly things of this world to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. 
God's way of saving. It's contrary to the way we naturally think or to the way that the system we live in, the world, assigns value to people. The gospel runs contrary to that. We're not able to earn our way up to God. We can't impress God with what we do. Rather, God chooses to love us. He chooses to rescue us from our rebellion. And he does so graciously. But then, that very logic provides a ground on which you can boast. You see, if God loves you, you should celebrate that love. If God gave his son for you, you should be confident in that sacrifice. If God has liberated you from sin, as God says in Leviticus, you should walk with your head held high. And as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So on the one hand, Christian, don't boast. But Christian, if you boast, boast in the Lord. The Christian should be both humble and at the same time confident. God's truth lowers us and God's truth raises us up with great assurance. And as we come back to Romans 11 today, I want you to see both of those attitudes on display in this section. That on the one hand, Paul expresses confidence in God's power to save his own countrymen, his fellow Jews. Paul believes that God can and will work even among them. And that while God is doing that in his mysterious way, he is powerfully working among the Gentiles. Paul keeps celebrating the grace that has come to all the nations. And at the same time, Paul will warn those Gentiles, those who have been favored by God, he'll warn them. Now, don't presume that you've assumed some kind of favored or favorite status. Gentiles, don't imagine that the church, as one author puts it, has become a Gentiles-only family. Or that God has chosen you because you are Gentiles. Paul removes those grounds for God's favor. And this is consistent with all of Romans. How did he start out the book of Romans? He warned the Jews, don't presume on your birthright. Now he warns the Gentiles, don't fall into the same trap. And so the passage becomes another reminder of how the gospel works. And it makes us hopeful, hopeful that God can save anybody, even those who are far from him. It makes us humble, as we remember it is only because of God's grace that we are saved at all. And it makes us confident. Confident in God's wisdom. God knows what he's doing. He knows his ways are best. He knows how he is working to rescue his creation. So let's look at the passage this morning. It shows us those three things. How the gospel makes us hopeful, humble, and confident. Let's go through it in that order. First, how the gospel makes us hopeful. And as we said last week, Romans 11 is the chapter where Paul says the most about Israel's future. He's traced salvation history. He went back, he looked at the map afresh to say, okay, how did things get to this point? Having reread the map, reread God's word, he's brought us to the present where Israel is reduced to a remnant so that God can save many Gentiles. 
But what comes next? All right, we're not lost anymore. We can keep going on our uh, destination. But what turn do we take next? What lies ahead? Did God reduce Israel to a remnant just so he could easily get rid of them? Is their condition permanent? Not at all, Paul declares. And he now begins, in today's passage, to climb out of the hole he has dug. And he asks, if Israel's transgression brought riches to the world, how much more will their full inclusion bring? And just note two things there. First, the possibility of Israel's full inclusion. That's on the table. Paul holds out that hope their current course can be reversed. And then so second, when that reversal happens, when they get back on the right track, well, just imagine what's going to happen to the whole world. And so Paul picks up that train of thought in verses 13 through 15. He says, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So follow Paul's thought here. He's going to explain. Here's how the plan of salvation will advance. First, just note that label. Paul says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. He's not just throwing around, these aren't throwaway words, you know, a functional title like, okay, he's the senior pastor or or the youth pastor. No, that's an on-purpose title. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. God is saving the Gentiles. That means Israel should check their watch. What time is it? The last days have come. God is acting to save the nations as he promised. He is now doing it through Jesus. And Paul's job is to be the herald of that good news. His very existence shows that God's plan is right on track. But maybe somebody would say to Paul, well, if you're the apostle to the Gentiles, even you are admitting that God is giving up on his people. Why aren't you the apostle to Israel? God must not be doing anything with them. But Paul shoots back, no, I take pride in my ministry to the Gentiles in the hope that I may arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. So again, what was Israel's role in salvation history? Why did God choose them? To be the light to the world. To bring salvation to the nations. And even when they failed to do that themselves, God, through the faithful Israelite Jesus, did it. And now that the Gentiles are enjoying salvation... God hasn't discarded Israel, rather, he's just reversed the roles. He said, okay, Gentiles, now maybe you can bring salvation to Israel. And when we think of that broad term, you may say, okay, that's great. How's that function for me getting out the door, going to work tomorrow? Okay, I can't trace out every verse this morning. But you'll find in several New Testament passages the same language about ministry being applied to Jesus, Paul, and the church. Jesus brings salvation to the world as a herald of the good news. Paul identifies himself as a herald of that good news. And so are believers. 
there is this identity, a corporate identity between Jesus as the messenger and his people as messengers. And so when Paul says, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that God might save some of my fellow Jews, don't just read that as, yeah, well, that was Paul's job. That was Paul's calling. God is at work through all of his people. So who knows what God will do through you? You say, I don't have the gifts, I don't have the lifespan left, I don't have the opportunities. Who knows what God will do through you? And if Romans 9-11 through 11 has taught us anything, it's that God can do anything through anybody. Do you remember when we went back through Ephesians 4? We talked about the gifts of apostle and prophet and evangelist and pastor and teacher. And I ran down some verses where those apply to church Offices, specific people, excuse me, that hold a church office. But I also drew attention to the way that the New Testament uses those words at times in less official ways. In other words, you've got capital A apostles. They saw the risen Jesus, the twelve. But Paul at times addresses a larger group of apostles, lowercase a, who go out and establish churches. Why would Paul make those distinctions? Because God has given gifts and abilities to all of his people, some in office and many not in office. One of my favorite stories from the Old Testament is this moment, I think it's in Numbers, where the Spirit is poured out on this group of people and they start to prophesy. And Aaron and Moses' sister come to Moses and they go, hey, these people are prophesying. Aren't you going to stop them? And Moses says, I wish that all of God's people would prophesy. Friend, you live in the age when Moses' prayer has been answered. And God has poured out his spirit, as Joel says in Acts 2, on all flesh. So who knows what God will do to bring salvation and healing to his world through you. And Paul, therefore, goes on to say, all right, through my ministry, I hope I can arouse Israel to envy. And we saw that language last week. I think it's worth answering this week. What makes Israel envious? What will they see and say, I want to get in on that? Well, again... Can't trace out every reference this morning. But there is this theme that runs through the Bible in which you have the original creation. God designs Adam and Eve. They are his image bearers. They are to take his image to the world. Now that job was damaged. Why? Because they said we'll do it our way. They rebelled against the blueprint. And that's been handed on generation after generation. God says, all right, I'll come, I'll work through Abraham, I'll work through Israel, I'll form this new humanity. They will shine my light to the world. That doesn't go well. And so now we read in the New Testament, God is transforming his people back into his image through their union with Christ. And then amongst the body of Christ, that is where we find the fullness of God's presence in the world. So I think the idea is that as the body of Christ matures into this new humanity, as they image God to the world, those whose job it was originally to do that might see it happening and say, you know what, I want to be included in that. 
And so this ties in with what I'm just saying about what will God do through you, through his people. We image him to the world. And what will God do through that to bring people to him? Again, it's a challenge. If we don't image God to the world, then no one is going to want to be a part of that. But nonetheless, this is how God has chosen to work. And so Paul concludes in verse 15 with this hopeful note of what Israel's future reconciliation might mean for the creation as a whole. He writes, For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Life from the dead will happen when Israel is reconciled. And and what does Paul mean there? He, He could be thinking of Israel's own future, their own resurrection. Think that uh, valley of dry bones imagery there in Ezekiel 37. Can those bones live? When Israel is saved, it will be a spiritual resurrection from the dead. And on the one hand, maybe including that, but even broader, Paul could be thinking in this category. Here's how one author describes it. As Israel's trespass and rejection trigger the stage of salvation history in which Paul and we are located when God is blessing the Gentiles. So Israel's fullness, their acceptance, will trigger the climactic end of salvation history. That their return to the Lord would trigger the end of all things. And I'm not suggesting, okay, hey, we could accelerate that. We can speed up the return of Christ. I'm not saying that. But as we shine God's light to the world, as we fulfill our mission, we move towards the culmination of history. By the way, that that is worth getting out of bed in the morning and going about whatever it is that God has called you to do, to move his plan forward. And just as God has used a lot of stumbles, Israel's stumble, the church's stumble, he uses stumbles to bring good news to others. So maybe in mercy, he will use our stumbles as well. But the gospel will make you hopeful of that. So let's go on and consider another thought. How the gospel makes us humble. In the middle section now, verses 17 to 21, Paul uses two images to bolster our confidence in God's ongoing purpose for Israel, but also to warn the church against being arrogant about their role in salvation history. So the first image is in the first half of verse 16. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. So in the Old Testament, the first fruits, that's the offering you gave to God before you could use the rest of something. So in other words, you gave him the first of your crops or the first of your bread before you used the rest. And the point was, when you gave God the first portion, that was consecrating the whole thing. Now Paul takes that imagery and he applies it to Israel. He's trying to say, look, they still have a status before God. They are still corporately considered holy before God. They are still his people. And I base that on what Paul says down the page, the second half of verse 28. 
as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. So because the patriarchs, the first fruits, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they believe God's covenant, they were holy to the Lord, therefore God continues to love the whole nation. Israel is still an elect nation before God. And so his covenant purposes for them have not been abandoned. Even if in the present there's discipline, even if in the present there's reduction, even if in the present he's given their job to the Gentiles, he has not abandoned them long-term, big picture. And the second image comes then back in the second half of verse 16. It's the same idea. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And again, the patriarchs, they're the root They embrace God's covenant by faith. Therefore, the whole tree that grows from their roots continues to experience covenant benefits. And that gives hope to Paul that one day all of Israel will experience spiritual renewal. Now, that's the hope there. But Paul now uses this imagery, the root and branches, and develops this picture of the tree to explain how we've come to participate in salvation history, and why we should therefore be humble about it. So look at verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. So it's the picture of the olive tree, straight out of the Old Testament, standard picture for Israel. Jeremiah eleven sixteen reads, The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form, but with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire and its branches will be broken. Sound similar language there? Paul is taking that imagery And he's saying, okay, some branches have been broken off, but also, what we maybe didn't anticipate, is that Gentile branches have been incorporated. In other words, the Gentiles have joined the people of God. And they now share the identity of the people of God. Now, how did this happen? Or or better yet, why did the Gentiles get plugged in to the Israelite tree. Why are they now part of the corporate people? Why are they now the means that God is bringing salvation to the world? Again, because of what Paul said. They were plugged in because many Israelite branches were broken off. As a covenant people, the faith wasn't there. The obedience wasn't there. The vocation wasn't being kept. And so God removed them from that purpose for a season. And if you've been with us on on Sunday night, really in the past few Sunday nights, we've we've especially seen this in Jesus' words in Matthew 22 and 23. You know, the kingdom's being taken from you. It's being given to a people who will bear its fruit. So the branches are being broken off. Again, Jesus' own words in John 15, the vine and the branches. Gentile olive shoots are being grafted in. Now, do not ask me to explain the holder, I can't even say the word, okay? You don't want me giving you plant advice. But Paul is basically just working with an image here in order to make a point. The grafting in 
that is somewhat contrary to nature. You've got these wild olive shoots. They're not producing fruit. So you plug them into a healthy tree in order to produce fruit. Again, goes against nature. Those two trees would grow separately. But God has brought them together, highlighting the power of God's grace. So by grace, we've been included. And so Paul now gives that warning there in verse 18. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. How did you even come to participate in this salvation in the first place? Because God chose Israel, and when Israel didn't cooperate, God graciously included you. So had there been no covenant purpose, had there been no Israel, there would be no salvation. And so one theologian writes this, the Gentiles must not suppose for a moment that they have replaced Jews in God's plan, that the church is now a Gentiles only family, or worse, that God has chosen them precisely because they are Gentiles. That would be to make the same mistake in reverse as the Jews had made earlier, namely to imagine that God's grace was tied to a particular ethnic group. And if they make that mistake, relying on their ethnic identity as the badge of membership in God's people, instead of faith alone, they can expect God to react the same way he did with unbelieving Israel. There are no promises of salvation for those who think it's their birthright. And and I know that's a longer quote, but I read it because it really just captures the rest of this whole section. You've been included by grace. Yes, the Israelite branches were broken off, and they were broken off so that you could be grafted in. That's God's plan. Paul grants that. And at the same time, he says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, and you are included by faith. Therefore, do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. God is pleased right now to work through the Gentiles, working through his church. But if that blessing becomes presumption, or if we look in arrogance on Israel, if we forget we owe our salvation to the Jews, then God may cease to work through us. You say, no, he couldn't do that. This is his eternal purpose and plan. We've learned in these chapters God's sovereignty can go in surprising ways as he fulfills his plan. So how do we apply that then to our lives? We must, as a church, never presume that God will always bless us, that everything will go on fine. If we are unbelieving, if we are disobedient, If we do not image God to the world humbly, if we do not reflect his grace, he may be pleased to set us aside and to work in different ways. And I'm taking the passage that way corporately because that seems like that's the emphasis in all three of these chapters. Sometimes people read these verses and they go, okay, could I lose my salvation? Is God going to break me off? I think he's thinking big picture here. The way his river of grace flows. It's by grace alone. And it flows down the riverbeds of those who believe 
and obey. So the gospel keeps us humble in that respect. And then lastly today, in closing, here's how the gospel makes us confident. Paul concludes with this summary. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. In the end of verse 24, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul concludes with a hopeful note. God can once again include the natural branches. In fact, Paul speaks of this as just a perfectly natural thing for God to do. As one author writes, insofar as it makes any sense to talk of things being easy or hard for God, Paul seems to be indicating in verse 24 that it's much easier for God to graft Jews back into the tree to which they belonged in the first place than to graft Gentiles in from the outside. In other words, God's already done. God is doing the harder thing. We're living proof of it. So how much easier will it be? For God to graft the Jews back in. And so that's why I've been taking this passage as indicating Paul's hope that God will save many Jews. That is how God works. He creates where nothing exists. He gives children where there's barrenness. He gives faith where there is unbelief. And those things are not hard for God to do. And he is free in his grace. Even if that means giving grace to those he offered it beforehand, and they said no. That is good news for us. Friend, one mistake, maybe even a season of rebellion in your life, a season of wandering, a season you look back on and say, bad choices. Even that does not thwart God's plan. Is that a license to sin? No. But listen to grace. Did that thwart God's plan for Israel? No. Now, there may be warning God gives you. You may find the Lord's correction on your life. Should you stop factoring him in to how you live your life? That may be the case. But when we return to God, he restores us. He accepts us. He is the father watching for the prodigal son to return. One of the most encouraging verses from the Old Testament, Joel 2.25. God says, I will repay you For the years the locusts have eaten. They had rebelled against God for years. And he had sent locusts to destroy their crops. And God says, but if you come back, I can make up all that lost time. You come back to me and I'll pay you back for the years the locusts have eaten. That's grace. And that gospel makes us hopeful and it makes us humble and it makes us confident. So let's give thanks to God. Father in heaven, thank you this morning for your grace. We, we want to be humble before you, knowing our own sin. We want to be uh, we want to be joyful before you, knowing your great grace. We want to be sober about the reality of sin and, and mistakes we've made, or, or the challenge it may be before us as your people to live out this calling and to be your image to the world. There, there could be great challenges personally for us. Father, your grace gives us hope, 
and your grace gives us confidence. So I pray, Lord, that we as a church would know you by grace and image you to the world, that you would bless the mission of this church and the lives we live when we're not assembled as a corporate body. I pray that you would reform us by your word and revive us by your spirit. And Lord, in light of this passage, we would pray for mercy on Israel, your first chosen nation through whom you worked. And our pleas, perhaps, to show mercy to them, to the 500 or so Jewish people that live in Spartanburg, that they would know your grace, and to your people scattered throughout the world, that you would gather them, and that you would gather them in numbers, that you would gather them in droves, and that we would perhaps be a part of your salvation of all people by showing your grace and your image to the world. Help us in that. And thank you for your many mercies, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.